Check out award-winning Johnson & Boone Solicitor's unique product, Legal Guard. Ideal for businesses and individuals, Legal Guard ensures you get the legal help you need when you need it. Packages start from just £24 a month and include free expert advice, access to a library of legal documents, as well as exclusive discounts on a range of services. For more information, visit johnsonandboone.co.uk forward slash legal guard and quote the code FITCHESH. You're listening to Johnson & Boone Solicitors Podcast exclusively on the Pod Station. Welcome everyone to episode 32 of the Johnson & Boone Podcast. My name's Mark, I am the host, joining me again... It's like um, what's what Groundhog Day, which is ironic given it's nearly Christmas, and that's one of my favourite Christmas films. If indeed you can class it as a Christmas film, although I would argue that to be the case. Um, but uh, I seem to have digressed somewhat, so bringing me right back to the topic and the point in question. Uh, joining me this week again is uh, Rob Boone from Johnson and Boone fame. How are we doing, Rob? Hey, Mark, I'm good. Yourself? I'm good. Do you like Groundhog Day, the film? Oh, dude, it's a classic, isn't it? Oh, it's amazing. And it is a Christmas film, for the record. Is it? Because it's not really around Christmas, but because it snows, it kind of falls into that bracket, I think. Yeah, it also fits in with the uh, the compulsory films that you have to watch over the Christmas period, doesn't it? Yeah. Die Hard, does that come at the beginning or the end of your Christmas period? That's at the beginning. Somewhere in the middle, you've got, you've got things like Gremlins. Yeah. Home Alone. Yeah, well, that's towards the end because that's a bit more Christmassy, isn't it? And then Santa Claus the movie just to finish it off on Christmas Eve. <laughs> <laughs> so that's date stamped exactly what time of the year it is that, that we're doing this recording of the show. So if you're listening to it in the middle of summer, apologies because it will seem highly irrelevant that we're discussing Chris, Christmas movies whilst you're basking on a beach somewhere listening to uh, a legal podcast, which does beg the question, do you have something better to do with your life? Um, <laughs> but there we go. Um, so this is part four of our mini-series, which surrounds business sales. Isn't that right, Rob? Yeah, so what we've done is, is a four-part series, as you say, in which we just give an overview of business sales. And we divided it up into four different sections. So we started off in the first week with the due diligence process. Second week, we talked about the contracts. Last week was disclosure. And now we're talking about the final stage in which everything's signed off, uh, the money transfers, which is the completion stage. If you want to check out those previous episodes, which obviously makes sense if you haven't listened to them and you're listening to this episode, because I'm sure throughout the course of this we're going to refer back to things that we've discussed there, you can find the previous episodes in a whole host of places. So 
starting off with the Johnson & Boone mobile app, which is on Apple and Android app stores. It's completely free to download. There's a podcast tab on there where you can find them and listen to them on your device. There's actually a load of other things you can do on the app, which is book appointments with the team. You can find out more information about the services. You can access your legal guard membership. So well worth doing very very useful indeed you can also visit the website which is johnsonandboon.co.uk there's a podcast tab again you can find it there on the website there are links to all of the major podcast platforms where you can find the show um, so if you use apple Podcasts, google spotify deezer stitcher tune in you'll find them all on there um subscribe and then when the shows do get uploaded every week they will download automatically onto your device it's as easy as that um we also say every week that this is very much a, a cursory view of these topics there isn't enough time really to delve deep into it and a lot of it is subjective issues so what affects you specifically uh, so if you do have any questions send emails to info at johnsonandboon.co.uk or get in touch on the social media platforms we're on facebook instagram twitter and linkedin if you've got any topics that you'd like to suggest throw them on there as well and we'll, we'll more than happily deal with those issues and deal with those questions um i think that's about it isn't it rob yeah, I think so. I think I've been quite comprehensive. I'm nearly getting efficient at doing these things. So, moving on to the grand finale of our mini-series. We're going to be talking about completions uh, today, so finishing everything off. So, do you want to just sort of go through some of the obligations that you routinely cover at this stage? Yeah, sure. So first of all, just as a as a basic, it's it's important for people to understand that this comes right at the end of the process. So everything is already agreed. There's no more negotiation to take place. Uh, draft contracts, including all of the obligations, everything is in place. And this really is the good part in which everybody puts the process behind them and moves on. But it is, uh, it's something that still needs to be done properly and in complicated matters, uh, it still includes a, a load of issues. In the last episode, we were talking about disclosure and that being relatively into the process stages. And you quite rightly said that until they sign on the dotted line, they can still come to you guys for advice and assistance to make sure that if there is something glaringly obvious, it can potentially be put right. I mean, obviously, there's more complications because if you're coming at the end of the stage, there's more factors that might influence that. But ultimately, things can be unpicked if necessary. Are we talking at this stage it's too late or is there a part within this stage where it becomes too late? This isn't a process that, or, or this isn't part of the process that we would be instructed in isolation to carry out. This is very much at the end of a process that we've had conduct of. So if we've came in at a middle stage, either the contracts or the disclosure stage, um, and we've had to go back, then we will end up here. But it's very unlikely that we will become involved just for this stage, um, because this stage is just the implementation of everything that's gone before. So if the contracts are wrong, or the contracts haven't been properly thought out, or any of the associated documents haven't been thought out, this part wouldn't make sense anyway. And when people are doing this themselves in very straightforward transactions where they've decided they don't need any help, 
really at, at a boiled down level, this is signing the contracts, exchanging what is going to exchange between the parties, uh, including any funds and people moving on. But it is more than that. And, and in, in cases such as share purchase agreements, there are lots of formalities that do need to, to be complied with. And as we'll discuss, if, if there's other issues such as people remaining involved with the business moving forward, it's very important that that's thought about as well. So for the benefit of the listeners, if you, um, this, even if you're planning on doing this yourself or if you have an instructor solicitor, this is still extremely useful to listen to because these are the, the crossing of the T's and the dottings of the I's that make sure that this is, is done properly. It is, yeah. And it might be that we talk about things that you haven't thought about. And as we've said previously, as long as you haven't actually finalised everything, um, it's never too late. Okay, so what is it that you're usually um, obligated to do at this stage? So most of the obligations will be upon the sellers. Uh, and a lot of these only apply to share purchase agreements, but some of them do apply to asset purchase. Um, the seller will be required to give things to the buyer, uh, such as uh, transfer documents for the shares, share certificates, uh, any registers for the company or minute books. There'll often be resignation letters that need to be handed in from directors. Um, there might be a power of attorney that is is signed for the company. So that's to cover the, the stage in between when the transfer takes place and when all the registration documents are filed and updated at company's house. And it gives the buyer the, the powers that they need to run the company in the meantime. There's also often things that are just housekeeping. So checkbooks, bank cards, passwords, even keys to premises, all of those things need to be thought out, how they're going to be passed over, how they're going to be implemented. Um, and whilst it sounds a lot of it obvious, it should all be recorded already within an agreement. And then you can make sure everything's in place. And when it comes to many of the documents, best practice would be for the, for the documents to already be in agreed form. Because what you don't want, let's say, for example, uh, something as straightforward as a resignation letter, you don't want to dispute over what the resignation letter says and whether it's definitive enough. So you would agree a draft in advance and then it's signed at the same time as, as the completion takes effect. So in terms of additional contracts, um, are these separate to the share and asset purchase agreements? Yeah, they are. So we spoke about the share and asset purchase agreements in, in episode number two of, of this series. What we're talking about here is things such as a consultancy agreement, maybe employment contracts, settlement agreements, the things that run alongside the the purchase and often they're missed if people are, are going to do it themselves or um, even if they are instructed, have instructed solicitors that don't normally do these types of transactions, um, they are very much additionals, but they're still very important. So when might a consultancy agreement be uh, required? Because employment contracts are relatively straightforward. Settlement agreements, we've we've dealt with those in a, a previous episode dealing with employment issues. So consultancy agreements is probably a new one. Yeah, it is. I, I mean, I, I think it's, if, if we run through all three, really, just so you can see them in context. So the consultancy agreements are very classic in this situation because you'll have a situation where... The owners of the business will often be staying on in a consultancy role 
for maybe three, six, maybe even 12 months. Um, and because it's for a fixed term and they're not actually employees, it's very important that it's set out what they'll do, how much they'll be paid. Uh, and sometimes it's um, instrumental to the success of the business moving forward uh, that they are involved for that period. Uh, settlement agreements are something that we've mentioned before. Now, if people want to go back to episode 14, uh, Chris and I went through what settlement agreements are. But I suppose that was more in the context of people ending their employment as part and parcel of an ongoing business. What, what, how does it relate in this particular context? In this context, it's more of a box to can exercise. So it might be that the owner of the business was formerly employed uh, and it's more relevant for company transfers. So let's say I own a business and I'm selling all of my shares to you and I'm going to leave. I might also have an employment situation with the company and the settlement agreement merely records that that has formally ended. I confirm I've got no um, issues or later claims that I intend to bring and it just neatly ends that relationship. And that's particularly relevant, isn't it, when you're talking about limited companies? It is, yeah. It's it's almost exclusively going to be in the situation where there's a share purchase from the back of a, a limited company. And finally, you mentioned employment contracts. Where do they fit into the general uh, picture? This is much less um, sort of common than uh, the consultancy agreements, but you do get situations where the owner is selling the business just because they don't want the responsibility of owning and running the business but they are going to take a full-time employment role within the business moving forward. So rather than being a consultant, they are an employee. Uh, and on that basis, you would be um, dealing with employment contracts. You might also be dealing with employment and contracts in situations where there's been an asset purchase and all of the employees from the previous business uh, are passing over to the new business and, and that would need to be dealt with as well. Um, so it does crop up, but much less uh, commonly than the consultancy agreements do. You mentioned before that it was um, certainly with the settlement agreements, it's almost exclusively a share purchase um, pro process that's been undertaken. What about the asset purchase situations? What what what's slight what's different about those? They're generally much more straightforward. Um, a lot of asset purchases are are very straightforward. There's a limited number of assets that are passing over. Often there aren't even any employees that are passing over. You know, you do get a lot that are really straightforward. Um, and in that instance, really what you're looking at is how physically are we passing the assets over? Um, how physically are we receiving the money? Um, and it, it's much more practicalities. Whereas when there's a, a share purchase, you do have to actually think about the ownership of the legal entity passing. Um, and generally, and it is a generalization, uh, they're of, of higher value as well. We assume that in today's society we're a lot more civilized and things are dealt with in a more back to you know to and fro type arrangement. But actually, within uh, the legal world, it's very much in a chicken and the egg situation. In so far as certainly when you're talking about like the completion of a purchase of a house, there is still very much that simultaneous exchange of contracts, and they don't 
literally don't pass over the physical keys to allow you to step over the breach of that house until monies have landed i mean it is it's it's like the wild wild west where you have that standoff and it's it's only one, once the first person draws the gun that the other one's allowed to draw the gun and off you go and it's very much the same here i assume i mean particularly when you're talking about the the payments when you're actually paying for the business itself it is usually what will happen is the funds will be given uh, to the buyers, solicitors in the first instance. They will then usually transfer them ahead of the completion over to the the seller solicitors who hold them to order. And then once all the documents are signed and the solicitors have been through a, a telephone process just to confirm they're happy with everything, then they uh, are released from the undertaking that they've given and they can pass the, the funds on to their clients. So it is it is very much done um, in that way. It, it's also done very formally just because the, the source of funds is always checked and that sort of thing, the money laundering regulations that needs to be c- complied with. Uh, so the funds nearly always will pass between solicitors as opposed to passing between individuals. Yeah, so anyone who is thinking about using a solicitor for the sale or the purchase of a business if you're thinking about turning up with a suitcase full of cash it's probably not going to be feasible rob it's very unlikely to be feasible now <laughs> um okay um the solicitors essentially act as a middleman or woman a middle person in these sorts of arrangements so they're trusted with the fact that they can hold things almost in a in a central void whilst everyone feels comfortable that everyone's got everything and then it's distributed at the same time. It is, yeah. So the funds will always be in a client account. They're always held to the other party's order. And then once all the formalities have been uh, dealt with, uh, obviously they're distributed then out to the client. And how does that work then if people haven't instructed solicitors? Because we've mentioned repeatedly that there may be people who try and do these things themselves. Obviously, if they've used Johnson, and you said at the outset when I questioned you on this, that it's highly unlikely that you would be involved in this process if you hadn't been involved in some of the earlier stages. If people haven't used solicitors, one assumes other solicitors are going to take the same approach as you, at which point, uh, who acts as that middle person? probably wouldn't be a middle person so it would be moving forward on the basis that the parties would meet they'd probably sign whatever documentation they'd put together themselves um, and then the funds would be transferred between them directly um, and they'd be physically passing things around between themselves so um, it is possible and it is you know it's it's done more than you think that it would be uh, but it does leave both parties wide open to disputes later on or to things going wrong or in worst case scenario, just somebody disappearing with funds. Throughout, you've mentioned different professionals who have been a part of the process. You've had to call on their expertise throughout to either double-check facts or because those things fall within their area of expertise and you need it ratifying or verifying or whatever it might be that, that you're looking for. Are they involved in this part of the process or does their their involvement stop once the disclosures taking place and all the negotiations have come to an end? 
at this stage, there's usually just us and then maybe an accountant that's still involved. And the accountant is sometimes important if there's a set of accounts that need doing at the end, the completion accounts. Uh, and sometimes the accountants will also uh, take care of the filing of company's house if it's a, a share purchase agreement. And at what stage can you go, this business is now mine and tell the whole world at what's the first step is it twitter because um i think certain um well-profiled individuals in high-ranking positions usually say everything first on twitter and then everybody else including people who probably should have found out before twitter uh find out subsequently um or is there some more regulatory paperwork things that need to be done first well often once everything is signed that's when the announcements will take place and that's when the you know, the champagne is, is pulled out. But if it's a share purchase agreement, it's really important that uh, all the formalities at company's house are dealt with uh, and the share transfer forms are dealt with uh, sort of properly. So the accountants, again, are, are usually the party who will do this, but the, the share transfer forms are obviously signed by the parties as part of completion. Uh, and then the accountants will send them off to ATM revenue if needed. And then the accountants will usually also do what's called a confirmation statement and that's something that's filed at company's house and it just updates the share ownership and it updates who owns what in terms of the company. And then that goes on the formal record because don't forget it's a, it's a publicly available record. And at that stage, that will show the new owners. Um, and then legally, whilst the company passed it the completion stage, it's visible for everyone to see that the, the company is under new ownership. And if it's an asset purchase, is there any extra steps that need to be done to register anything or make sure that certain bodies are made aware? Not really. So the accountants will still have to obviously make sure that any uh, tax implications are, are dealt with, uh, any VAT is, is paid, that sort of stuff. So there's still the financial side of things. But with an asset purchase, really, uh, let's say that it's specifically... Um, machinery that's been purchased and some stock. Um, once that's been passed over, that is it. So the contract is the completion and then the physical handing over of the assets uh, is, is what satisfies that. And obviously the money will come in the opposite direction. Okay, and that largely brings us to an end of the process, a very simplified simplified version of the process. I suppose there's just a couple of additional questions that I might have um, to help people understand finally some of the stuff we've, we've covered as a whole. Um, which of these steps that you've gone through over these last four episodes would you say tends to bring up the most issues, the biggest problems, the most complex obstacles that you have to overcome? The bulk of the work, depending upon the the type of the transaction that it is, will be in the negotiation of the contracts. Because I think as we discussed, the negotiation of the contracts and the uh, disclosure stage often become ent ent entwined all together, really, because when you're negotiating the terms of a contract, you'll have in one mind the stuff that you need to disclose as well. So that's the more sort of complex elements of it. Uh, but due diligence is often something that certainly in really high value ones will take a long time. We'll have lots and lots of people involved in uh, and that is a, a real expense. But it is in very high value ones that that's the case. And in terms of timescales, I suspect the answer is very much it depends on the nature of the the sale. But what's 
what sort of is the fastest turnaround time anyone could ever realistically expect, even in the most straightforward of of sales, right up to what what sort of timescales have you heard of, even if you haven't experienced it with perhaps some of the more complex ones? And I'm not talking here the multi-multi-million pound deals because I highly doubt that anyone who's looking to make 100 million pound business sales is listening to our podcast wondering how to do the sale of a business. But, you know, th- th- there are still big million pound, two million pound plus deals that, that are there to be done, which which will take some time, I suspect. Yeah, they will. I mean, if you go right down the very bottom of the the simplicity scale and you're talking about a transaction where the client doesn't want any involvement in relation to due diligence or if there is, it's very basic questions. There's very little by way of disclosure in the process. You can do these things within a month. You know, it is something that you can can wind right back uh, and there's very little backwards and forwards. There's very little to negotiate or, or disagree on. Uh, and it can all be wound up within a month, sort of start to finish. Once you start um, where there's a due diligence process, perhaps that has largely been uh, completed before we get involved, then you might be talking six, eight weeks, something like that. Uh, it, it really does depend upon how quickly the other side are able to respond um, and how long negotiations on the contract will go on for. But a standard one, you would say, would be three months. So start to finish, as long as it isn't overly complex, you'd say three months. Uh, but I have known them to take six, nine months um, in, in in sort of start to finish. And they have been, as you say, the ones that are closer to two million pound. And, I mean, we part, part of the reason why we've we've touched on this numerous times in the past Many people try and do these things themselves largely to save on costs of using solicitors, um, perhaps to address that elephant in the room somewhat for those people who might have those concerns. And for those who don't have those concerns, it might just help for them to understand a bit more about how the fee structure works in comparison to obviously the complexity of the the deals so that they can at least know roughly what to expect even if it's the figures are impossible to provide because they're so subjective yeah of course so it's always by reference to um how much work you want doing so when we have an initial consultation on these matters we'll set out all of the various stages that might be relevant for the transaction of that type and we'll ask all of the questions in terms of uh, what the future looks like, what involvement people intend to have, what are they worried about, all those sorts of things. Um, and then it's all done on a on an hourly basis. So um, as a very sort of general rule of thumb, you tend to find that the legal fees involved work out at just less than 5% of the transaction value. Now, obviously, the very low ones, the very, very low ones, it's more than that. And the very high ones, it's substantially less. But as a general rule of thumb, you're looking at 5% of the value of what you, you're selling or buying are going to roughly be the, the the cost of your legals. And I think the other thing people often have a fear about when you say you charge based on the hour, these are things that are agreed in advance, aren't they? You don't just go off and go, uh, we'll charge you on the hour and I'll come back with a bill in 
X number of weeks and that's when you'll find out how much work we've done and how much it's going to cost. It's actually the other way around, isn't it? It is, yeah. So once we've got a feel for the transaction and how complex it's going to be and um, how many issues they're going to be, I'll be able to give a fairly precise um, estimate as to the cost for the various stages. And of course, you can tell us that you don't want us to do certain things. So there are people that will come and say, I don't want you to have any other involvement than draft me a, an asset purchase agreement. And here's the heads of terms that we've agreed. I don't want you to look at anything other than to give me a decent contract uh, that implements those heads of terms. And we do that routinely. We'll also advise as part of the handing over of the contract, all the things that you should be doing and all the things that you might want us to have a look at, but ultimately the client stays in control. Um, what we never do is you know, a one size fits all process. So if you're doing something for a modest value, we've got no interest in dragging you along a very long and, and complex process because you don't need it. So we'll always identify which bits you need, which bits you don't, but the control remains with the clients as to what they want us to do. So in the general scheme of things, it, it does it does strongly suggest that this is a process that's well worth getting the experts involved because you keep control over what the bill's going to be. The bill's never going to be a, a, a huge percentage of the business that it is or the transaction that you're ultimately carrying out. And the the professional protection with the likes of your professional indemnity insurance, obviously the untold benefits of the expertise that you can provide very much balances that equation. Yeah, it definitely does. It's something, I mean, I think we said in the very first episode of, of this series, if nothing else, have a consultation and understand the nuts and bolts of the transaction that you're doing because a lot of people may not understand the complexities they will think that it's straightforward they will be excited obviously to move forward either with the sale of something they've built up or with the purchase of something new but all of that it it does somewhat come crashing down if it goes wrong um and it's always more expensive to fix something than do it properly in the first place i would be a very very wealthy person if i got to pound for every time someone said this isn't that complicated but would you mind taking a look <laughs> and uh, when you when you did take a it's very rare that anything is that straightforward very rare <laughs> all right rob well i think we've done that um we've done the four parts as i say go and check out the previous episodes go and check out all of the previous episodes the reason why we do this show is to arm you with information, to empower you to understand the problems, the legal issues that are likely to arise either in a personal circumstance or in a professional circumstance so you can either avoid it or perhaps mitigate the effects of it as best as possible. Um, give us a review. Uh, on whichever platform you listen to it massively helps us because it means more people can see the show and hopefully that in turn will mean more people will benefit from listening to the advice that rob and his team have given us um, again as i said at the outset if there's any questions that have arisen as a result of this show send us an email to info at johnson and and rob or someone else from the team will uh, absolutely reply to it and actually if it's a question or indeed a topic or a subject matter that would warrant the ability for us to uh, go into a bit more detail then I'm sure Rob will be happy to do an episode on it. 
Yeah, of course we will. Any requests at all in relation to things that people want expanded upon, um, as long as it's uh, enough in terms of content, then we'll always put together a show. If it's not, then we'll have a chat and we'll we'll explain what um, what it is that you're looking for us to explain. Fabulous. So, Rob, thank you very much for another interesting episode. Uh, I feel like I've sold the business after that. <laughs> I feel we should go and pop a cork of champagne. Absolutely. Obviously Absolutely. socially distanced. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for listening, guys, and we'll catch you next time. Thanks very much. Bye, Mark. Get social at Johnson and Boone on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter.